Good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to the Friday edition of Seven Investing Now. Let me just say first, my name is Daniel Brooks Klein. I'm the host of the program, but we are here because it's been a sea of red. It's been a scary couple of days, and you know what? We're not here at Seven Investing, and I'm joined today by Simon Erickson and Matt Cochran. We are not worried. Like We see this and we say, sure, do we wish this happened a week ago so we got our March picks at better numbers? Yeah, absolutely. But here's the reality. The companies that are great companies are still great companies, even if inflation ticks up a point or whatever it is. That's going to be the theme of today's episode. So we want your questions about the market, about what's going on. We're going to look at some really great companies that have absolutely uh, taken a dive in historical perspective. But before we do that, uh, Matt, welcome to the program. But Simon, it is our first birthday. We're celebrating year one of Seven Investing all month long. There are party hats. There are those little Sundays that the, <laughs> they give you at McDonald's on the other half, the, the lid, where you only get that part. There's orange drink everywhere. Make your own pizza. All the birthday things <laughs> are happening. But Simon, why don't you talk a little bit about what we've accomplished in our first year? Because it's unbelievable. Well, how about the best birthday present of all for long-term stock investors, Dan? A lot of bargains in the market to be buying right now, right? <laughs> Seven investing mugs are on sale. We can have stocks that we want to buy on sale. Uh, we are really excited that we're doing business already in 88 different and 88 different countries around the world. In one year, Seven investors make an impact in empowering people to invest in their future. Think long-term so that when things like this happen, when the market's selling off and everyone's going crazy, we want to reframe the conversation and say, hey... This is actually the perfect opportunity for a long-term investor to buy the positions you've been wanting to buy for a long time. And so we've, uh, we're still full steam ahead. You know, we're one year in now, and we would love to hear uh, how we're helping you to accomplish our mission. We want to hear your seven investing story. We want to hear how seven investing has helped you in your investing journey along the way. And so anybody who shares that with us, either uh, on this program, on at seven investing on Twitter, at info at seveninvesting.com uh, or any other way that you can get a hold of us. We, we'd love to hear your story. And we're going to enter you into a contest where we're going to be giving away one of fr seven free annual subscriptions to Seven Investing. So really excited to be here for a year and even more excited what the future holds. Sam, if you want to share Matt's cell phone number and home address, uh, people can... <laughs> no, no just, just, just kidding there. We're really excited. Um, and of course, Matt, you have that list of 88 countries that you're going to read off. No, no, we're not going <laughs> to yeah, In alphabetical order. <laughs> we appreciate so many of you. Uh, and look, if you're not a member, I kind of think that after watching this show today, you might understand a little bit more about the sense of calm, the long-term view we bring to the market. So Sam, let's share it now. If you want to join us, it is 7investing.com slash subscribe. It's easy. It's $17 a month. It's $170 a year. That's two months for free. Uh, and you can pick which two months. If you want a longer month, no, it doesn't matter. It's just $170 <laughs> a month, uh, $170 a year or $17 a month. But our top story today, we're going to talk about very quickly Costco earnings. And then we're going to talk about why the market is punishing great companies. Matt, I thought the Costco numbers were stellar, if you want to go through them quickly. Yeah, absolutely. No, it, it was a great quarter for Costco. And Costco, I mean, just one of those uh, great all-time retailers. Um, but yeah, the stock fell after the retailer reported its quarterly earnings because it was below, uh, quote-unquote, Wall Street expectations. And that was due in part to like, Higher wages amid the pandemic, uh, it earned two fourteen a share, which was just up slightly from two ten a share last year. But sales was up fifteen percent. 
Uh, total, total comparable sales rose 13%. Uh, e-commerce sales were up 76%. I think that was like the big number. You know, the average transaction size was up. Um, the U.S. and Canadian renewal membership rate, which is like a very important number, was uh, came in at a 91%. So just really good numbers all around, Dan. These are stunning numbers. And I think it's important. We're going to talk about metrics over a whole bunch of companies. But when you look at a Costco, all those sales numbers are nice because they show an engaged user. But here's the reality. The number that matters is the membership number. 91% renewal rate. It ticked up 0.1%. So in a pandemic, they've proven to still be useful to their members. In some cases, that's that's mobile. In some cases, that's curbside pickup. In a lot of cases, it's still people going to stores, which have they've done a good job with distancing and lines in the parking lot and all the other things. So Costco has kept engaged with its members. And what do you look at when you look at Costco? In a non-pandemic, you look at warehouse openings. They're, they slowed down building warehouses during the pandemic for obvious reasons, because you can't sign up members and do some of the hype things you would do. Uh, but they are adding customers. They added about a half million customers, uh, and they added a few hundred thousand to their executive membership. Costco makes most of its profit from those membership dollars. Their sales are not actually that relevant as long as they manage their inventory. So it would be bad if Costco was sitting on a billion dollars worth of inventory and didn't sell. That's not the case. They're moving merchandise well. They're engaged with their customers. And analysts, which is a vague blob of people that don't sit in front of Costco and look at the size of you know uh, what people are buying or how many people are entered. These are people throwing darts at a dartboard uh, that really, you know, look, I don't have a ton of respect for that whole space. They're guessing at profits. This makes no sense. They did better than a year ago during a pandemic, which is, I think, absolutely unbelievable. Manesh, David, we see your questions. Uh, we're going to get to questions later on in the segment. But Simon, one of the things we talked about here is a lot of really strong companies, we're going to go through a few, are being sold at a bargain. Can you speak to the idea that stocks sometimes trade based on sentiment? Right now, the market's just down, and that's kind of going to pull most votes down. You want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And and just to chime in a little bit with Costco, too, I think you nailed it, Dan, about talking about the loyalty programs. They've got the executive program that costs $120 a year, but you get 2% cash back from Costco, 3 and 4% cash back on gas and other things you purchase. So that adds up quick. You're spending at oh, least $500. So I mean, you're, you're, actually, you're actually um you're confusing the executive program with the credit card. So oh, the, I'm sorry. The, the credit card gives you the two, three, four, which you could layer on top of the executive membership. Correct, the executive correct. Thank membership, you. Which costs 120 versus 60 for a regular one, gives you 2% back on nearly every purchase up to $1,000. So if you're correct. a regular Costco customer, it's very simple math to determine whether that's a good deal for you. For most families, it would be a good deal. Let's pivot a little bit here because I don't want to belabor Costco. Costco is one of my favorite elephant up a hill companies. We'll, we'll show some graphs later where if you look at Costco, it just eventually treks up. They're a big dividend payer. But we want to talk about whether the market is punishing good companies for their success. And Max, Daniel, see your questions. I promise we will get to questions at the end of this segment. Matt, you wanted to throw out Home Depot as one of those companies that's just, they're killing it and the market is not responding that way. You want to go through some numbers, maybe share some graphics? 
Uh, yeah, well, actually, we don't have graphics for Home Depot, but the numbers were great uh, for this company. Um, you know, uh, in, the, in Q4, uh, the home improvement giant saw sales rise to $32 billion. That's a 25% increase year over year. Earnings per share was up to 265. That's a 16% increase year over year. Um, so we just saw strong results, strong results across all the company's categories and regions. Uh, that's 19 of the company's U.S. regions in Mexico and Canada. They all posted double-digit comparable sales growth and local currency, all merchandising departments, also double digit uh, comparable sales growth. Um, the number of quarterly customer transactions that was up uh, almost 13% a year. The average receipt uh, grew 10% year over year. And for the full year, the total sales per square foot rose to $544. That's the highest number the company's ever put up in their history. So in other words, across every region, category, and basically metric, Home Depot just had had this banner year. Um, you know, the numbers gave the company confidence to authorize a 10% hike in its dividend, uh, you know, giving it about a 2.5% dividend yield right now at its current price. It might actually be higher now, considering the sell-off we had the last couple of days. Um, but, you know, so th the quarter was great. And yeah, it's sold off now, it, you know, Again, it, it, I, don't, I don't know what the stock price is at this exact second, uh, but, you know, it's it's down more than 10 percent. I think about 15 percent uh, from its highs after reporting a, a stellar quarter, a, a, just a stellar quarter. And right now it, its P.E. ratio is under its like five year uh, P.E. ratio average. So you actually can buy the company at a cheaper valuation than you than you, for most of the last five years. So. The company's doing great and the stock price is struggling a little bit, but it's another example of just one of those great companies that uh, that you can almost kind of get on a sale. Not, does, of course, doesn't mean the company can't get cheaper or or that it, it might not underperform for a little bit longer, but it, it, it is. It's an example of a great company doing great. So, Matt, one of the concerns here, and I, and I find it ridiculous because it's been thrown out at a lot of good retail companies, is the pandemic is going to end so for a quarter or two, we're going to pay less attention to our homes. We're not going to spend as much on DIY projects. I'll throw out and tell me if I'm wrong, that that doesn't change the fact that eventually my roof's going to wear out or a window is going to break or whatever it is, or your washing machine's going to go. So there might be like a squishy quarter or two, but that doesn't, am I missing something? This doesn't change the business trajectory of Home Depot. No, absolutely not. And the average home, uh, the average age of the homes in the U.S. continues to get higher too. Like, uh, and they even mentioned this on the conference call, but like, uh, I, and anecdotally, this absolutely rings true in my own life. You, you fix something up in your house, like you paint one bedroom and you're like, wow, now the other bedroom looks crappy by comparison. So we need to paint that bedroom too. Or you fix up your back deck and you're like, well, now, now this needs to be done. It kind of just built, once you fix up one area of your house, the other, you know, you want to do the rest of your house. So, and that's not going to change. I uh, look, they did say that there's a little economic uncertainty right now. And if the economy reopens up, maybe people spend a little more on travel than they did. Uh, well, than they did last year for sure. And maybe a little less this year. So they said like, look, we're not really too sure about guidance. If, if demand continues like as it has like for the beginning of, of the quarter we're in now, they expect to see uh, like flat to slightly up comps this year. But that's like, but that's after 20% comps. So, I mean, like if you normalize that over a two year, like for a two year growth rate, it's outstanding growth. Um, so yeah, there's a little, there's a little uncertainty about this year's comparable sales, but like in the long term, nothing has changed about this uh, trajectory of this great company. 
So Simon, as we get to some of the other companies on the list here, one of the things I wanted to talk about, we're going to take the discussion a little bit out of order. And guys, there are some graphics if you want to call for any of those at any points, but comps. So if you have an abnormal comp, so you're up 20% because there's increased demand, there are some benefits to that. That means you've captured more customers, you've increased your retention rate with your existing customers, there's overall goodwill, but realistically, those conditions may not exist next year. So if they're flat or even down a little, shouldn't you really be looking at where they were in 2019, not where they were in a pandemic-driven 2020? I've talked about this a lot. When I worked for my family business and we made some crazy special multi-million dollar low margin sale, we didn't put that into our financials. It was an asterisk on our financials because it was not necessarily repeatable. Are companies not doing enough to explain this or are we just so stuck with how we look at things that we're going to talk about same store comps no matter what matters? I think it's the latter of those two, Dan. I think we do spend a lot of time on the top line sales and the comps, and we really should be looking at more of the bottom line and the profitability to the business. We just mentioned Costco, how important memberships are. We just talked about Home Depot when Matt said that, yeah, it's it's going to be the operating profit in the absolute terms that I think is most important for investors, right? Because we've got some changes that have happened from COVID. People are buying groceries you know, online. Uh, picking them up in store. You know, Home Depot has got an omnichannel where people are ordering things online, just picking up rather than having them stocked on the shelves. Uh, but at the end of the day, does that does that matter to the business as long as it can adapt to the new way that consumers want to buy things? Maybe not. And if comps change and it was a really, really good comp year because people are buying more groceries and things from retailers uh, than they were from going in store, that might not matter as long as you're boosting operating profit in the long term. And I've seen both Costco and Home Depot their operating profit line looks fantastic, even as they've adapted to a crazy year that we've had. You're also going to see costs fall. There's literally added just employee bonuses and things because of the pandemic. But there's also extra cleaning. There's logistical hurdles. It simply takes longer to do things when you're keeping employees six feet apart. And when we talk about a Home Depot, if I'm not using my house, I'm somewhere. And if I'm somewhere, there's a decent chance that whoever works on somewhere is buying their stuff from Home Depot. So you're right. I might not wear out my office and have to repaint it every 18 months if I'm not spending all my time at home. But if I'm spending it in an Airbnb, eventually that Airbnb. So if you look at Home Depot, where their demand comes from may change. And Matt, that brings us to the next one here, Domino's. Domino's will bring you a pizza at a public beach uh, you know, with their pinpoint location thing. So we might not eat as much Domino's pizza at home, but their numbers are absolutely stellar and they have our information. They can send us a pizza and it's really easy to do once, you, once you've given them your credit card and your info. Let's talk a little bit about their numbers and why you think that's sort of an amazing bargain right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is, we do have a couple of graphics for Domino's and, and Sam, if you can throw up the first one, just the, over the last year, Domino's has actually underperformed the market by about, by about 30 percentage points, which is pretty pretty stunning. Um, you know, it's down about 25% from its 52 week high. Uh, but the company itself is performing great. Like the same store sales, uh, it's had same store sales growth of 11 and percent, uh, for the year, uh, international same store sales growth of four and a half percent. Um, and so that is that fourth quarter, it marked the 108th consecutive quarter of international same store sales growth. And the 39th consecutive quarter of us same store sales growth um so this is like not a new phenomenon for them to be growing uh there's uh their same store sales uh it's grown their their store count uh it added 624 locations in 2020 its eps for the year was up 30 percent 
in 2020. Uh, you know, so the board has authorized a, a $1 billion share repurchase program and it raised a dividend by 20%. Um, so look, I, I mean, you know, again, an example of a company clicking on all cylinders and yet the valuation of Domino's because of its uh, recent uh, like underperformance of the market now is, is cheaper than its average. And we have a graphic for that too, Sam, if, if you could throw that up. So like, you know, over the last five years, it's PE ratio is, is uh, about 35 and right now you can get it, you know, it's down about, it's PE ratio is about down about 25% from its five-year average. It doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean like maybe the stock was too expensive for the last five years, but like this is a company doing great and you can get it at a at a nice discount from its historical average, at least its recent historical average. And, um, and, and everything in the company's numbers has been great. Consistently profitable, consistent growth, never miss a quarter, adding stores steadily. They understand their business. Now, Matt, I might be biased here. You know, I'm not a big fan of Domino's Pizza. And, you know, partially, I went to high school with the Noid. So, you know, that's absolutely a, a, an, an issue there. That's a joke. Credit that you ages you so much. <laughs> the Noid had a video game. <laughs> so, Matt, you have, you have a bunch of kids. Yes. Post-pandemic, when you're allowed to go out, does your demand for Domino's decrease when it becomes easier? Or is it still just a regular go-to inexpensive food source for a bunch of people? No, look, Domino's is about as a is as much about good pizza as McDonald's is, is about a good cheeseburger. Look, it, it really sells convenience and affordability. And so someone in uh like uh for, for me, like uh, you know, uh like I have four kids. If I if I want like a, a cheap fast dinner, my wife is working, I'm working. Uh, you know, it's hard for us to make dinner every single night, but we can't like just go out and, and eat. You know, at a at a nice sit down restaurant because buying six meals at a restaurant adds up pretty quickly. Uh, Domino's hits the mark every single time. You know, um, and it sells like you said, convenience. Like you're at a park, you're throwing a party. You know, it has like there are there are hot locations which you can just you don't need an exact address if you're at Pavilion Number Five at a at a on a local city park or something. Um, you can just put that in and they deliver right to you. So it's about speed. It's about convenience. It's about uh, cheap food. And uh, and that's a winning formula. You know, that's a proven winning formula. They're like three months away from being able to deliver to you in a plane. Like this is a company <laughs> that understands its customers. And look, the pizza tracker is something they own. We've talked a lot about the failure of third-party delivery. Domino's does first party delivery and they've made it work through volume. So this is just a fine tune business model. And, you know, have they done great with added products? No, their sandwiches are worse than their pizza. Their pasta bowls are an atrocity. But that said, they could eventually figure out other food <laughs> and other well, ways. Well, they, they might, they might. Uh, but like uh, to your point, Dan, they basically pioneered the food delivery uh, movement like 60 years ago when they like their their first locations were near college campuses and they couldn't afford to open like a big pizzeria where people come down and sit. So it was just all carry out. And they said, well, we'll just uh, we'll take the pizza to the dorm rooms. So you want to talk about data like these other uh, like third party delivery uh, services can have. They've had Domino's has 60 years of data. You know, they've had a lot of time to like not only collect data, but also for trial and error of how delivery works and how it doesn't work. And they've done it profitably for a very long time. So they, they know how this business works. So I talked Costco and all the things that we just talked about with, with Home Depot and Domino's apply to Costco, trading well off its, its 52 week high. All the metrics are good. The only negative you could say is that they weren't quite as profitable as like maybe they would have been if they didn't have to spend a lot of money on extra salary and masks. 
in my opinion, they're also sitting on so much cash that had the pandemic not happened, they have a history of doing special dividends, very weighty special dividends. It seems very likely to me that when the optics are good and we no longer have a pandemic, that they will pay out another special dividend. Can't predict when, but if you buy Costco stock and hold it for three years, I'd be willing to stake a lot on the fact that that, that would happen. This is a company that doesn't have to innovate. They can go very slowly and watch what works in the market. They were very slow to digital and they moved to digital when their customers said, hey, here's some of the things we see elsewhere that, and we'd like those. They can adjust on a month by month basis because they have a rolling membership. So if they see like when they raise prices and they saw that they didn't lose 1% of their membership on a rolling basis, okay, they knew that that price increase was going to be just fine with their customers. These are all good companies. Simon, you're the Mayor McCheese in our world. Uh, you did not put a company down on the list, but there was one you, was there one you wanted to talk about that is it's just, just same internationally too, Dan. I, you know, the one that I was looking at too was Mercado Libre, right? Which is not as familiar for retailers in the United States, but this is an e-commerce provider in South America and Latin America. Fantastic growth, fantastic growth in payments, fantastic growth in gross merchandise volume, top line revenue sales, everything looked fantastic. It's still down 25% over this last month. So back to the last comment that we made earlier in the program of are we selling off good companies because of this correction? I think we are. Um, and I think that the other the other comment I would make on this is that as long-term investors, we need to adapt how we look at companies, right? I mean, we, we spend so much time talking about revenue growth and same store sales and number of locations that they've built around the country. When in reality, the game is changing. You know, Costco is now delivering groceries and for pickup. Uh, Domino's is really easily delivering you orders no matter where you place them on your phones out there. Home Depot has gone omnichannel. We can pick things up rather than going through the stores. I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, we don't just look at those same top line metrics anymore. As long-term investors, strategies take time and we look for the companies that are executing well and, and absolute uh, operating margin dollars is, is a metric that I would love to watch for all of these retailers. In about 60 seconds, we're going to go through your questions. After that, we've got two really interesting things. We're going to talk about the Space Race uh, and Sea Limited in what we're watching. And if there's time left, we've got a really great segment on how you should balance your portfolio. Don't know if we're going to have time to get to that, but we're going to try to. But before we do that, uh, Sam Bailey, why don't you share the first Costco graphic that Matt took the time to make? So I don't want to, uh, to skip it. Matt, why don't you explain what we're looking at here? Well, yeah. So you just think of winners of the pandemic, um, you know, and Costco is one of those companies that you think of. I mean, just people were not eating out. They were buying more groceries and things like that. Um, we just already talked about Costco's great numbers, but yet it's underperformed the market over the last year. And yet, so what, what that means is like its valuation now is below its like recent historical average. So it's same if you throw that up, like you can just see that like Costco's like because of its outperformance over the last year and, uh, but it has not performed as well as the market. Um, like it's just it's trading below its its average PE ratio from the last uh, you know three to five years. So it's it's just a it, it's re it's really it's just a it it does again it doesn't mean maybe it was too expensive the last five years. You know may, that you could make a case for that I guess. But it's a great company. It's performing great right now, and it's trading below its uh, recent historical average. It just means that that might be an opportunity worth exploring for investors. Sam Bailey, we're going to take these questions in order, but let me sum up the seven investing philosophy. Identify good companies, buy them, and hold them for the long term. You cannot look at Costco. I don't even think you could figure out a bear case for Costco. Like Your bear case would literally have to be that drones get so good and no one ever wants to leave the house, and it doesn't make any sense because 
people like going to Costco and they like saving money. So if they don't want to go to Costco, they could still be a member and save money. The same things apply for Domino's. If Matt and I go to a pizza place, uh, maybe every couple of months that is near where he lives and not that near where I live. Um, and it's about four times the price of Domino's for Matt to take his family there would be a big night out, you know, whereas for just the two of us, it's not that big a deal. So that is the metric they're working with. Like they have somehow cornered the market on good enough and convenient home Depot serves a need. They, you know, the volume, the logistics, all of that, but let's get to your questions. Let's take Manesh Gami's question first. Hi, all. I'm a newish investor, a new member uh, and investor. I've seen my portfolio dive over the last two weeks. I'm not worried panicking. Uh, but what real practical steps can I take to help ground me? Um, watch this show. We're here for you. I haven't sold. I'm going to do some buying. Simon, your thoughts here. Well, Sam, I'm going to queue you up for a couple of graphics, too, because I think that this plays right into that. Great question, uh, Mahesh. Thanks for asking this. But the first of these is kind of, uh, if we can throw that up, it's the, it's a, this is kind of what investors want the stock market to do, right? If you see the returns of your stocks and the y-axis and then time on the x-axis, this is what we psych psychologically want our portfolio to do. We want it to just go up in a straight line like you saw there. But in reality, here's the graphic of what the S&P looks like, right? Look at those recessions. Look at the dot-com bust from you know, 20, 2,300, 2,400 down to 1,200. And then also the recession of 2008, 2009. I mean, you've got to go through some pain to be grounded in with reality. But then if you look at the long-term returns, if you zoom out for 30 years or even 10 years, you see that the stock market is a great compounder of wealth. And so if this helps some perspective, Mahesh, you know, of seeing the portfolio dive over the last two weeks, it hurts. There's no doubt it stings when you look and you see all that red and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm losing all this money. But unless you're cashing out your account right at the bottom, does it matter to you if it goes up in a straight line or if it goes up and then down and then back up again? I mean, that's why we preach long-term investing. That's why seven investing is buy and hold all the positions we're making on our scorecard. Because we think if you zoom out a little bit, it's going to be just fine and don't don't have the emotional grief. Don't worry about the, the ups and downs over the weeks and, and months. And Simon, just real quick too, we did a whole show about that uh, last Friday. If you're interested in checking it out, it's on YouTube where I think every advisor from our team was was on it talking about just how to like mentally prepare and prepare yourself for a market crash. We would love for you to be subscribers to our YouTube channel. We, you can get this as an audio podcast or a live stream video cast, uh, which I will throw out a nice comment from Daniel Delgado. Uh, he says, I love the live podcast every Friday. We actually do this every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And then, of course, we do a reported, more traditional podcast, longer form interviews on Tuesday and Thursday. Valuable info is always your top-notch team. I'm a new subscriber. Welcome to the 7 Investing family. You guys have so much to offer. We are so honored that you want us to be here for you. This is like, look, you just broke up with your girlfriend. You want to pick who you're going to go and talk to and get comfort from, and you've chosen us. And obviously, in this case, it's the stock market. It's a little scary. We are happy to be here. Our friend Max Lucas says, has Costco's revenue from gas come back? I was shocked to find that 10% of their revenue came from gas pre-pandemic. They don't report those numbers, uh, and I haven't read the entire earnings call to see if they were asked about it. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter. I I'm going to say no, it hasn't, because we're not driving as much. 
gas is a break-even proposition for Costco. They have gas, so you go to Costco. So it feels like, and it is a great member value if you live near a Costco. They have the, almost always the least expensive gas. So I'm sure we're filling up less often, but that doesn't make the value any less and it doesn't sort of affect their bottom line. It's sort of like people are really excited when samples can come back, but I don't think that's really a business bottom line decision for Costco. Great question, Max. We appreciate it. Uh, Robert Glenn says Costco is an excellent company. Yes, they are. Um, and and then we've got one more from, I'm going in order, so apologies to taking the same person twice, but Daniel Delgado says, Apple had a big quarter, it keeps falling. It was falling before this NASDAQ correction. Why? Um, I think we all know know why, but uh, Matt, why don't you jump in on that one? So I'll actually say this, and I'm, I might be in the minority among us, but uh, like a lot, Apple had a terrific run the last few years. I mean, a terrific run. A lot of that was was based on valuation, though. So, like, its valuation, like, really jumped up. Its organic revenue growth has slowed down, especially compared to the other big tech companies. And so now you're seeing a bit of a pullback. Um, you know, like, again, going back to Simon's stock chart that he showed, like, you know, we want investors, uh, we want our investments to just go, you know, straight up and to the right. And so often, you know, they, they, they zig and zag on their way to uh, up and to the right. And I think that's what you're just having right now in Apple. I, I don't think it's anything to be concerned about, like as far as the, the long-term prospects for the company. But I would say probably the price was probably a little ahead of itself. And now you're seeing a, help, a pullback. I, I'll actually go further in. I think Apple reported the best quarter of numbers I've ever seen a company report. And not that I look at every report of every company, Partially because they showed they're trying to diversify from the iPhone and their service revenue lines have grown consistently. They were up 10% in every category. But when a company lays out a blueprint and they say, we want to grow this area of our business and they do it, that to me is laudable. I do think Apple is going to take a while to go from $2 trillion to $3 trillion, but I think healthcare is going to give them that opportunity to get to $3 trillion. Simon, feel free to jump in here. Has to be, has to be healthcare. That has to be the next horizon for Apple. There's no doubt about it, especially with that growing line item of services. And uh, the iPhone has kind of hit peak. You know, you can keep making more expensive iPhones and some people will buy them, but we're kind of plateauing on that. It has to be healthcare. And that's why Apple's going all in on the privacy aspect of this. They want to say, hey, we have protected your privacy. Trust Apple as we go into wearables and healthcare, because that's where devices are going more and more consumer facing, right? It's not just the hospitals and doctors that have access to patient data anymore. That's democratizing. Apple wants to be in this market. My Apple Watch is as much my boss as Simon is. The you know, Simon <laughs> could tell me to do work. The Apple Watch could tell me it's nine o'clock at night. You haven't walked enough. Go out and take a walk. Uh, That's only where I am telling you to do work, Dan. It's on your Apple. I think it has my voice programmed in, right? <laughs> uh, so, so Tim Petch asked a question nobody can answer. How long will this dip slash correction last? What's a good entry point for March's picks? A good entry point is now, whenever. Unless something has irrationally gone up 10,000% or made some crazy move, when we make a March 1 pick, we're not saying run out and buy it March 1. We're saying this is our highest conviction pick right now. So if you didn't buy our picks on March 1, well, you're going to get a little bit of a bonus because some of them have gone down. But here's the reality. I am not the least bit worried about any one of my picks in the long term. Now, obviously, not every pick is going to be a hit, especially when you get into the risky space. But overall, when you're identifying good companies, when you're doing the homework we're doing, uh, entry points aren't that important. Simon, feel free to elaborate. 
Absolutely. I completely agree with what Dan said. There's two ways to approach this, right? You're either finding great companies that find a pretty good entry point, or you find uh, companies that aren't as great and you're just like, you're just obsessing over what the current price target is, right? We've gotten so used to this world of saying, oh, well, we think that this company is worth $100 a share because of estimates that go into an Excel spreadsheet model. But we don't really know about the fundamental competitive advantages. We don't know about the management. There might be some sketch things going on. People wanna buy bargains that seem like they're out of whack with their 12 month price target. But again, those are just based upon inputs that a lot of times are built off DCF models or other quantitative uh, models built by, by professional institutional analysts. Our perspective has always been at Seven Investing, try to break that mold of saying, oh, I've gotta get in at this price target. Or as the uh, the mention you know that that Tim said here is what's the good entry point? Good companies will continue to unlock value for you as a shareholder over the long term as they build out and win with their strategies. Apple's acquisition of Kiva is a great example of that. I don't have a whole lot of time to go through that detail, but um, look for the right companies, hold them for the long term because fundamental growth is going to power the long term returns of companies uh, for for decades instead of just months. It's really important to look at the groundwork. You mentioned Amazon and Kiva. When that when that deal was made, that was kind of a like, what? They spent $800 million on a robot company? And I pictured that episode of The Simpsons where Mr. Burns brings in all robots and it goes terribly wrong and the robots start committing suicide. Uh, but you know, that being said, that deal, when you first looked at it, you went, what? And now when you look at the capacity, the automated robots working alongside human, well, project that out to Walmart. Walmart has 170,000 people filling delivery and curbside pickup orders. I've seen the technology at trade shows, back when you could go to trade shows, to automate that easily. That's just a question of time. So that becomes more efficient, more people can be served. We have three more questions here. We might take more, but I, I see three. I'm going to give one from Manesh to Simon. You're going to read, Matt, the one from Doris and Renee Carell. I'm going to take that one. And then Joey K's question is going to go to Matt. So Manesh says... Uh, also, you know, as stocks are on sale, how do you decide which ones to top up? Adding to winners is difficult when there are no winners at the moment. <laughs> They're not winning today. There's still plenty of stocks in our portfolio that are up hundreds of percents or at least 20s and dozens or whatever it is. Simon, how do you decide where to buy? Wow, what a great question. I, I, Mahesh, I wish we could like hang out and, and you know have a Zoom call where we have a couple of beers and talk about this one because this is this is exactly what we do. And we like to nerd out on as, as professional analysts on, on a monthly basis is when is the right time to buy the right company? Uh, a lot of times, as we've seen, Dan, in recent months, we went back to the well and bought companies that were selling at all-time highs, right? They were not bargains in the market. It wasn't like it was a sell-off that made us want to buy them. We just said, hey, the market is changing in a way that's really going to favor this company, this, this AI company, this cybersecurity company, whatever it might be we weren't as concerned about the valuations and them being on sale as seeing, oh, wow, they're really getting some momentum out there and people adopting their products. And so to answer the question, I, I would say, you know, add to your winners. Don't be afraid to buy companies that are all-time highs. Um, and if, you are, if you're happy to hold them and you're, you're comfortable with the valuation, you don't think it's gotten completely out of hand, uh, don't be afraid to buy, quote, unquote, expensive stocks. Those are a lot of times the best winners in the entire market. I don't change my buying habits all that much, but I will say that when things are like this, if I look at something that, you know, I've always been on the fence on Domino's. It's a great business. I can't get around the fact that I don't personally like the pizza. 
But now I look at it and it's a lot more palatable at, you know, at 20% off or whatever the numbers are. And I'm not saying that's what I'm going to buy because there, there are definitely some other ideas on my list, but I always have one or two things on my watch list. And we'll come back to watch list in a minute. But Matt, if you want to share the question from Doris and Renee, uh, I will answer that one. Sure. With some states opening up more, isn't that going to cause a major shift back regarding online and delivery-based businesses? No. <laughs> so, and, and here, so at the peak of the pandemic, online retail, including grocery, at the peak was 20%. So 80% of shopping was still taking place in-store. Some of that's going to be curbside pickup. So I do think we're going to see the acceleration from 2019's like 13% online ordering to where like 16, 17% becomes the norm. And maybe in a year or two, it gets to 20. I actually don't think it's going to climb that much higher than that. Because in some ways, it's not super efficient. So if you look at something like third-party food delivery, it's more expensive. I use Instacart. I used it twice this week because I was busy. I know I'm spending more for everything I buy. The convenience was worth it for me. Until we have major technological changes that, that sort of make delivery very efficient, it's still going to be better in most cases to go to a store. So I think we'll see a slight acceleration we'll see much more hybrid shopping where, yep, I, I bought it online and I go to Home Depot and I pick it up. And that we talked about this earlier in our Slack, that there's going to be some shift in, okay, well, I've already paid for that. So Home Depot maybe needs less checkout people and more person to go to the back to get my order ready. That's really just a shift in labor. And there'll be some sort of squishy costs as that happens, as they figure out what that looks like. It's one of the things I love about Costco. Simon asked me about you know Costco and distribution centers. Costco's warehouses are actually warehouses. So like I'm picking orders, so is the person who is filling that, that curbside pickup or that delivery order. And they've kept their delivery very, very tight uh, with quantities and what they're willing to deliver and made it very, very efficient. Amazon's gotten really good at this. With AI, Amazon could know not Simon, but someone like Simon in his neighborhood is going to order a razor and tea Wednesday at three o'clock. And they literally know that and package that up and have cut that time out of their system. Everybody else is playing catch up, but it's going to get there. Uh, that is a great question. I don't think there's going to be a massive shift. Uh, Joey K asks, and we'll throw this one to Matt. This week is an example of why watch lists are so important. Uh, important for stocks. You don't want to be on watch lists in other cases. Uh, finally pulled the trigger <laughs> yesterday and today on a bunch of buys. That took a second to uh, to fit in there. I've wanted to I've wanted to make after being pretty inactive year to date so far. Yeah, a lot of people do wait for situations like this. Matt, your thought here? Uh, no, same thing. Actually, uh, Joey, uh, like besides uh, adding to my uh, recommendations, which I always already own when I make them, I, I add to them after I make the recommendation too to get myself a little skin in the game. But other than those buys, I have not bought this year until yesterday. So uh, I'm, I'm starting to like, and, and to this morning I bought a little more. So I think it's a good, and you should always have watch lists. You should always have stocks like that you that you want to add to or, or or start a position in, but you're not, maybe you're concerned a little about the price or you just want to learn more about it. And times like these make that a, a real good opportunity. Just remember, you don't have to go all in at once. You can just do it a little at a time, you know, especially in today's age where we have $0 uh, commission fees on our brokerages, uh, you know, that can be like a double-edged sword, like especially because it encourages trading. But but if you use it to your advantage, you can just add a little at a time. And so times like this, you know, you can buy, like let's say you're looking at, at one of the companies we're talking about, like Costco. You can buy a little today. And if it goes down next week, you can buy a little more, you know, and you just dollar cost average your way in. But yes, you should definitely have a watch list and stocks you're watching. Absolutely. 
We've got a few more questions we're going to take very quickly here. Then we're going to move to what we're watching. We're going to try to get the whole show in. Uh, we very much appreciate how engaged all of you are. Joyce Hines says, uh, all pizza is good, some is better. That is not true. Uh, and just go go and get a Red Baron pizza and tell me all pizza is good. Go, go oh, back I love and- Red Baron, Dan. Yeah. Come on. Oh, no, penalty, penalty. <laughs> Most pizza penalty. is good. Uh, and, uh, moving De- on, moving on. Gibran1218 <laughs> asks, what is the significance of the Google ad story on the media advertisement space? So I'm going to actually throw this to, we covered this on Wednesday's show. Simon, I was going to head into our promo. So let's say Gibran wants to find exactly where we talked about this, which I think was Wednesday's show. It might have been Monday's show. He can go to our site. And how can he find it? There's a really awesome tool we've just unleashed on 7investing.com. Well, two, it, for one, if you wanted to look just at the live stream, just 7investing.com slash live stream. But we've even built a more interactive search bar powered by Yext, which I really enjoy working with this company, to help you find exactly what you want to look for. So, Jabron, if you wanted to type in Google Ads Media Advertisement Space, uh, it might bring you up to Steve talking about this story with, with Dan earlier in the week. And so check out our site, 7investing.com. Right at the very top, you're going to see that same search bar you've gotten used to at Google. That's a great way to find all of our information as quickly as possible. So when this show ends, Sam Bailey takes the raw transcript from the show uh, and uploads it to something uh, to something we call Otter. Otter goes through and processes everything. Uh, and then I go in and I take a look pretty quickly. These aren't perfect transcripts. Think of them as like earning call transcripts where you are going to see some errors. But I go in and make sure the company names are right, that the data points are there, that they're sort of readable. And usually within three or four hours of this show ending, that's going to become searchable content on our site. Today's episode is not going to get fully done until Saturday because I'm traveling a little bit this afternoon. It takes a couple hours for it to to process. Uh, But that being said, this makes the 7investing site so much more valuable because you could go, geez, I know they talked about... uh, you know, this type of earnings, this company's earnings, I just don't remember when. You go in and you type blankety blank earnings and not only as a member uh, are you going to get all the places we've talked about it for free, you might get an update if it was a pick. You might get a think piece on one of us where we mention it. It's taken something that wasn't great. Search is not great on most websites and it's still a work in progress, but it's making it awesome. It is a powerful, powerful tool. Uh, So we are absolutely happy with our friends at Yext. You're watching 7investing now. We are moving to what we're watching. Uh, And Simon, the space race is on. I am putting my helmet on, getting my laser gun. I am ready to go. But that's not the story we're talking about today. Why don't you fill us in? It is. That's exactly it. Dan, we're going to shoot you to outer space. We're going to film our next episode <laughs> live. We've got satellite internet up there that's going to beam you back down. Make sure you get the window seat so we can see the view of what you've got from Earth. Dan's uh, next we, promo video is going to be great. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this You one. can't get good internet in a Vegas hotel or on a cruise ship. I'm a little concerned about the space internet capability. We're going to work on it for you, Dan. We're going to make this happen. Uh, the, the story I'm actually really interested in is Rocket Lab is going to be coming public now through a SPAC. A lot of other space economy companies are coming public right now. And this is why this is on my radar. Q pun intended, Matt Cochran. That's as good as I can do to combat your banking jokes that you've had earlier this year. <laughs> Okay, when, uh, Simon, <laughs> how, how do dinosaurs pay their bills? Oh, goodness. Here we go. How, how, do, how do they, Matt? With Tyrannosaurus checks. <laughs> oh, On-the-spot humor from our very own Matt Cochran. Dear God, so, so, Simon, we had a pretty big development this week. So I watched it, 
we had a successful launch, a successful landing, and then a less than successful post-landing. But reusable rockets are, you want to say here, I'm going to say almost here, because it's pretty cool if I'm on a plane and I get off and it waits 15 minutes to blow up, but it did still blow up. So, uh, but where are we? What's sort of this next uh, development in the space race? Yeah, and remember, it has to be perfect for this. I mean, safety and reliability are everything, and Elon knows that. Even when he's publicly showing these things, he's saying, hey, we this is the percentage chance we have of failure. The thing that uh, I'm really interested in Rocket Lab, which a shout out to my friend Nick for putting this on my radar once again this uh, this week, but I, I think it's really interesting to see the infrastructure taking place for the space race, right? The, the limiting factor for businesses to get out into outer space was that they just didn't have access to launch their satellites, they had all sorts of neat things they wanted to do. They had satellites with sensors that they could monitor things in outer space, but it's just so darn expensive and so difficult to get the payload attached to one of the other manifolds of something that was actually going to outer space. And now SpaceX has got a spaceport that they can launch from. And this new company, Rocket Lab, has got a spaceport in New Zealand that is FAA cleared to launch every 72 hours. So every three days, you can have a, a payload uh, rideshare with something that's going to outer space. You can actually start putting things in outer space and building businesses around it. The costs have come down tremendously. This is incredibly interesting for me as an investor. So Simon, does this mean if uh, Matt wants to shoot Max's laptop into space just to screw with him, that that's becoming cost effective? Like I'm doing yeah. a little bit, but- <laughs> You can book it on the website. You can actually request a booking directly online. We can put Max's laptop on the next payload that's going up there. <laughs> that, uh, giving my what about sending Max to space? When can we do that? <laughs> <laughs> G- giving kid, my kid the greatest excuse ever my homework is in space we could uh, we could actually go with this is there is there something investors should be doing here so like everyone's so excited about space and they're they're buying one etf and a couple of other companies but what are sort of the plays in this area so there's a lot of companies that are announcing SPACs, like why is momentous space and AST and science and spiral global, global who all have different business models. Why are they all doing this SPAC rather than just going public in a traditional IPO? And to answer your question uh, with that question is efficiency is everything, right? Capital efficiency of how you're raising money through a SPAC versus going IPO really matters. Uh, operating efficiency of how can you get the costs as low as possible while still maintaining a pristine safety record. Everything. The, the, the point is we've got a lot of options right now. I still feel like it's kind of like the Wild West. It's hard to discern without any kind of operating data or history, which, which companies are rising to the, the, you know, the, the top dogs in this industry. But it's, it's, it's definitely worth paying attention to, Dan. I, I'm very intrigued as an individual investor to have options that aren't just Lockheed Martin uh, you know, or, or the big defense contractors to choose from. There's also a lot of risk here. So SpaceX, which is a, an Elon Musk company, which has not gone through the SPAC route, but probably will, you have it here as valued at $74 billion. Their core product at the moment uh, is blanketing the sky with satellites to deliver internet. And uh, my friend Lon Seidman, who I've done, done his show uh, at least once, um, he talked about how he set this up with his brother in a kind of remote area, and it was really good internet at a really affordable price. And I'd argue that's great. But in three years, the growth of 5G makes that almost unnecessary. So there is a lot of risk involved in this space. There's a race to space tourism and sort of these uh, these hyper fast flights. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there, Simon. But this is very, very risky territory. I'll give you the last word. There, it is very risky. And, there, and there's, there's strange competitive advantages you wouldn't expect to, to think about. 
right? Like, you know, when we're talking about tech companies or retailers, they all have their own, you know, niche of, of metrics you look for. In the space race, you're looking for things like orbital inclinations. You can have the optimal, you know, spin around the the, the planet or, uh, you know, what is spectrum for satellites look like in outer space and who has those kinds of rights. I mean, things like that are traditionally land grabs or that you would want to be near consumers uh, for, for earthbound businesses. This is a completely different space that we're exploring now. It's, it's, it's a really fascinating way. And as you kind of think at the end of the day, how are these businesses actually going to be profitable considering how capital intensive they are? It's, it's something I'm actually pretty excited about. We are long-term investors here at 7investing. If you are looking at investing in space, don't expect it to happen quickly. And I would argue if you buy any of these SPACs, uh, don't look at them. Like, like really just like check in once a quarter to see if they're they're hitting their goals or doing what they say they're going to do. The daily price of something that depends on goals that are three to 10 years out is really not a meaningful metric. It's a, it's kind of like tuning into an NBA game, you know, three minutes in and going, oh, well, the Celtics are winning 10 to two. At this rate, they will win 400 to 18. Like that's not how it works. So you really need to change your your perspective. We're going to do Matt's what we're watching. We are going to skip in, in the home stretch. We were going to do how to balance your portfolio. That's a question we got via our email that deserves more time than we have for it today. So on Monday's show, uh, we will look at sort of not just is our portfolio all stocks? Does it include real estate? Does it include gold? Does it include Beanie Babies? Uh, you know, Matt's got a whole room full of Cabbage Patch Kids. I keep telling him to sell. That is a big mistake. No, we're going to look at, I'm being silly here. We're going to look at on Monday how to do that, not to give it you know the time it deserves. But Matt, you want to talk about C-Limited's full year earnings. Why don't you uh, explain what this company is first and then go into the earnings a bit? Yeah, of course. It's actually, it's based out of Singapore and it, it's a company's name is C and you just think of that as SEA Southeast Asia. And it's quickly becoming a digital powerhouse in that corner of the world with three fast growing segments poised to capture upside in some of today's uh, like most exciting industries. That includes video games, mobile commerce, and digital payments. And one of the keys to C's success is its um, focus on mobile first platforms. So C's Garena, is a global game developer. Oh, we'll take the first segment first is uh, uh, digital entertainment. And it's Garena is a global game developer and publisher with a significant presence in Southeast Asia and Latin America too, actually. And in 2020, for the second year in a row, it's game Free Fire was the most downloaded mobile game in the world across Google Play and iOS, according to App Annie. It was also the highest grossing mobile game in Latin America and Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia last year, um, and its revenue uh, growth in its digital entertainment segment was up 72% uh, in 2020 to $693 million. Uh, its second segment, e-commerce, uh, that's uh, like Shopee is its e-commerce platform, and it connects buyers and sellers uh, supported by like integrated payment, logistics, fulfillment, and other value-added services. Uh, and its revenue in that segment was up 178% year over year to $842 million. Its gross orders on that platform totaled $1 billion uh, for the first time ever last year. And that's an increase of a 135% uh, over 2019. And uh, both in Southeast Asia and in Taiwan, Shopee ranked first in the shopping category by average monthly active users, total time spent um, in app and the downloads uh, for the fourth quarter and for the full year. Uh, it's also the third most downloaded app globally in the shopping category for the full year of 2020. 
So these numbers are incredible. And, and this is a company that's using the revenue from its successful game to build out its financial platform. And a financial platform, games eventually tire out. No matter how, it could, this could be a perennial that people play, but eventually it will peak out. Matt, is their biggest sort of path, uh, you know, barrier to success who they compete with? And they come up against some really big companies, right? Yeah, absolutely. But they, um, in that corner of the world, there's a lot of companies coming up. Like, in fact, I think there's going to be a SPAC for uh, Pinduo, uh, like, which is a, a Peter Thiel backed uh, like company that does a lot of like e-commerce too. And because they're in different, because C is in different segments, they come up against a lot of competition. Um, but like, one of their keys to success, like like I already said, it's it's they're focused on mobile, and not only just mobile, but like their their game, like Free Fire, for instance, it's purposely not built to like the the highest quality graphics that you know you might be able to find because it's um because they know in a lot of the parts of the world where they're uh where where their their customers are located, they might not have the best internet connection, they might not have like uh you know the latest iPhone either. So a lot of it's like built for Android phones, which is like the, the largest platform in the world, you know, for mobile devices. And it's like, uh, and it's just, it, it, they, they purposely like scale it down a bit. Um, and, it, you know, they also, besides e-commerce and uh, digital entertainment, they're also financial services. So like C-Money is like their, uh, their e-wallet services. It's like payment processing, uh, credit related digital financial offerings and other financial products products and that's marketed and branded in different southeast asian markets and it's, it can be airpay or shopee pay or shopee pay later and other brands and while still the smallest of c's business segments by a large margin the mobile wallet platform saw more than 2.9 billion dollars in total payment volume and more than 23.2 million quarterly active users in, in c's fourth quarter so they're just using that video game money and they're funding all these other things these are huge markets in this part of the world yes there's competition but this is not a winner takes all space we've got about eight minutes left we're going to sneak in the finisher at the end but i wanted to take as many of your questions as we can daniel delgado asks uh hello seven investing team any stocks that were recommended in the past that would be great stocks during this pullback period? I know both of you wanted to talk to this. It, it can be tricky. We're making seven picks a month. A couple of them are sometimes re-recs, but it is hard. You're, you're sitting there with your $500, your $10,000, whatever the number is, and you want to get in on this sort of down market. Where do you go? Simon, you can go first here. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we have a subscriber call where we actually talk about our previous recommendations on the third Friday of the month. So uh, March, uh, this would be the, what is that? Help me out, the 19th, Daniel, I think I think is the uh, the third Friday of March. That and in the morning, correct. we're going to be talking, yeah, we're going to be talking about all of our previous recommendations, Daniel, and you're more than uh, willing for any subscribers to uh, to attend that and ask us directly, uh, you know, what stocks do you like right now? We, we actually give our most intriguing pick across everyone on the team. Um, Dan and Matt, myself, and everyone that's an advisor is going to say, hey, this is the one that's most intriguing on the entire scorecard right now. Sell off included. So that's my that's my take on that. I mean, Dan or Matt, anything you want to add or? Let me no, absolutely. In, Subscribe to call. Is great. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. My dude. pick last month as my most intriguing wasn't one of mine, and I don't think it's ever been one of mine. I'm sorry, Matt. I stepped on you there. Not at all. Not at all. No, that's a that's a great point. And uh, 
Uh, yeah, the, the subscriber call, we all give our best recs. We also offer company updates on our site, uh, you know, for past recommendations every month. Um, and if there's any, like, there's some companies that are small caps, they don't, they're not in the news a lot. There's not too many things noteworthy. But at the end of every year, like in December, we did all of our recs for the past year, a review and update and what we thought of the company, you know, and how it had done since we had recommended it. So even if we don't hit it on a monthly company update, no matter what, we hit all our recommendations uh, at the end of the year. We're gonna take one more question uh, from Will. There is a great question from Cheyenne. Sam or whoever's watching uh, back at, at any of our homes, if somebody could just screenshot that so we can answer it on, on the next episode. Uh, really so many great questions today, but Will says, love seven investing. A little off topic, uh, but can you talk about what paths or actions one would take for a career similar to what you do, i.e. researching investing ideas for a living. So I'll go first, but we're all gonna talk about this because we all took different paths. So my background is journalism. I came up and I learned the skills of reporting and researching and managing a newsroom and hitting deadlines. Uh, and then I ended up uh, in the financial space. I worked for Microsoft where I was curating business news uh, on the MSN money app, done by robots now, not done well, used to be done amazingly well. And I would spend my entire day with Bloomberg on in the background and seeing all the news wires and trying to figure out what stories were the most compelling, working with, of course, what worked in terms of readership, what worked in terms of my bosses not being mad. Then I became very, very interested in it, was lucky to get a job writing about stocks uh, where I learned that you can't really understand these things if you don't put in your hundreds of hours. Like the person who has a surface opinion on cord cutting doesn't have the nine years I've spent studying that industry, can't pull up, well, this is the mistake Costco made five years ago on this thing they did, or here is their history of raising prices. There's so much knowledge you need to build. So if you're young and you want to get into this, you really just have to start doing it. So many of our friends, uh, Alan Sokoloff with his Cruising Altitude newsletter, I'm going to have him on again next week to talk about millennial investing. Our buddies at Chit Chat Money who are affiliates, who are younger guys who just threw themselves into doing the work and there is no replacement for just learning these companies. I am not a fan of like these places that just take people and like now you're an analyst. Like an analysis builds up over time. It's not just knowing how to read a report. It's really like a mix of being in the field and doing it and getting there. But Simon, your path was a little different than mine. Yeah, and, and, and all of ours are, are different from each other, right? We have a very diverse team with different backgrounds. Uh, WLI, I, I would encourage you, if you, if you want to get into investing, uh, f first of all, thank you. Uh, we, we, like Dan mentioned, want to partner with people that want to share that same mission we have of empowering people to, to invest. So send us an email if you're interested in, in joining our partner network. We think this is very important. Um, if you want to personally do more research, like Dan also mentioned, I would recommend opening up the 10K that's the annual report and start looking at segment information of a business. That's where they break out the different segments and how they do the reporting, where they're making their money from, basically. And then look at the definitive proxy, too. That's the DEF14A statement. Um, that is really where you can kind of look at executive compensation and, and how they get paid and what metrics they're looking to achieve. I mean, putting those two pieces together kind of gives you the, the story of of what a business is trying to do in the long term. And that's the kind of investing that, that we really like to do. Both of those are on a sec.gov website. If you want to look at any financial statements that have to be reported. Matt Cochran, you have 30 seconds. I apologize. <laughs> well, I took the traditional path. I was a police officer. <laughs> Isn't that how most people get in the financial industry? Uh, but seriously, like uh, what everyone's saying, like, uh, 
start start doing the work start putting it on twitter uh start a free Substack, uh you know and and send it to your friends and family uh respond to us with with questions or, or comments in, in twitter um or or feedback or like saying well what about this um you know that, that that's basically how you started i don't think it's ever been easier to get into the industry with with tools like with social media and, and things like that so you know but 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 just start just start where you are and, and uh, see where it takes you so I'll throw out one last piece of advice. Be willing to get better. And let me give an example. So when Matt came to uh, to my orbit, he was a brilliant analyst. He knew the stocks. He was not a professional writer by trade. So I met Matt and I was working with the MSNs of the world and, and USA Today. And I said to Matt, hey, could we work a little bit on your writing so I can send it to these people? Because you're writing articles that they would like. And Matt went, oh my God, that's great. And we worked together. That's kind of how we first became friends, I think. 99 out of 100 people that I went to and said that went, yeah, okay, whatever, and blew me off. Those people don't advance. So I don't care what you're good at, what you're not good at. Be open to working with people and really learning. I used to work with one of our former editors where he would just live edit my piece and he would go through it and be like, oh, you could be tighter here. You could do this there. You could do that there. And it made me go, oh, wait a minute. I'm good, but why not strive to be great? And I think that's something that in the investing space, you can always learn more. You can always learn from someone else. But Sam Bailey, we're running out of time. Let's hit our finisher. This one, oh boy, this one absolutely stunned me. Which chain is the best fat, fast food breakfast? Overwhelmingly, you said McDonald's. Folks, have you been to Wendy's? The Wendy's breakfast is like, it looks like food. Whereas the McDonald's breakfast, it's, look, I, I like a McGriddle or an Egg McMuffin. I'd even eat a Chris sandwich if I happened to be at Burger King. I think this is maybe the most gratifyingly wrong poll. And I, a lot of people said Chick-fil-A and some said Starbucks. I didn't include either of those because I think they're a clear step above. Simon, I know these aren't regular stops for you, but am I right? People are getting this one wrong. I, I would I would choose Chick-fil-A over, over any of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, Matt, yeah 100% Chick-fil-A. But yeah, uh, had- the choices is 100% McDonald's. I don't know what you're talking about, Dan. I didn't even know Wendy's had breakfast. So the answer to your question is, have I been to Wendy's for breakfast is no, um, I have not. I don't know what their breakfast food looks like. I, I, I don't know when the last time is I stepped into a Wendy's, but McDonald's, so, Egg McMuffin, it's a classic. Come on. W- Wendy's launched breakfast roughly the day the pandemic started. Like so, so this, but the breakfast baconator, which includes both bacon and sausage. <laughs> you're making that up. You're making this up. No way. No, I am not. They also have a frostuccino, which is a cappuccino with frosty in it, which is not a healthy choice, but is also a good choice. The Taco Bell. Does Taco Bell have breakfast? Like, where's Dunkin'? Where's Chick Fil A? Those Taco are Bell like does, Taco Bell does have breakfast, and again, we'll do one where we talk about. Dunkin', Starbucks, Chick-fil-A, that's a good poll as well. But I think you you need to compare like things. It's also important to note that Twitter only lets you have four choices. I don't know why that's the case, but you can't have a none of the above. Like, like, look, I appreciate all the people that are like, I never eat fast food. Yeah, you do. (laughs) There is no person who at like a moment of weakness in an airport or whatever isn't eating a you know, a McGriddle or a... In this the- temple? <laughs> Put that in this temple? What, <laughs> Are you what kidding that, me? What was that Burger King sandwich that was like 1,100 calories? It was called like the Lumberjack or something. So with that, we are out of time. We really appreciate that in this difficult week, you sat here with us and, and heard some perspective that, that you recognize that we're not in this for the short term. I've talked about this for weeks, 
that if a company I pick goes up 20%, but nothing's changed, I don't care. I want to see the, what the company does after the new news happens. After we see, hey, Dan believes you know this was going to happen, and then it happens, that's when I start to worry about the company and be excited about it. So it's a frightening day. It's been a frightening week. But your long-term investors, we will be back on Monday. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, it is at 7investing on Twitter. We are very active on Twitter. We are growing by leaps and bounds on Twitter. Simon Erickson's account also growing by leaps and bounds on Twitter. Mine, not as much. So if you're not following me on Twitter, you should. I'm the only one who's ever silly. So you should do that. Um, that being said, if you want to email us, emails can be about questions about our service, questions about you know your membership, or you'd like to be a member. Uh, that is info at seveninvesting.com. We've even gone a couple of minutes over today, but I think it was important. I am Dan Klein. From Matt Cochran, to Simon Erickson, to Sam Bailey, we will see you Monday at noon. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.